and welcome to Skeptically Curious. I'm your host, Ryan Rutherford. This is a podcast where I endeavor to know more and think better by talking to knowledgeable guests about fascinating topics. So please join me on this journey of exploration and edification. Among the more inescapable truisms is that few can ever legitimately be described as one of only a handful of leading figures in their respective field. Without any exaggeration, Dr. Ken Keel's celebrated career as a psychopathy researcher has deservedly placed him among just such a rarefied elite within his discipline. Furthermore, as anyone reading his superb 2014 memoir Come Primer, The Psychopath Whisperer, will learn, Dr. Keel's career has intersected with some iconic luminaries, particularly in neuroscience and psychology, including Carl Friston, Michael Gazzaniga, the Nobel Prize-winning mathematician John Nash, and the grandfather of modern psychopath research, Dr. Robert Hare, who created the Psychopathy Checklist, which is still the unsurpassed gold standard of assessment. Dr. Keel completed his undergraduate degree at the University of California, Davis, and earned a doctorate under Dr. Hare at the University of British Columbia. Putting his studies to practical use, for several years he worked in a maximum security prison in Canada. Thereafter, he was affiliated with Yale and the Institute of Living, and for the last 15 years has been a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of New Mexico, where he heads the Mind Research Network, a non-profit institute. During his work at the latter institution, Dr. Keel and his team have used a mobile fMRI to scan the brains of over 5,000 inmates in five states. In the interview, after Dr. Keel summarized his storied career, he spent quite some time reflecting on the scientific method, which included relating this to his own work. I asked my guest to provide the so-called dinner party definition of psychopathy. He then clarified the distinction between psychosis and psychopathy, as well as sociopathy and psychopathy. As we discussed and is elaborated upon in more detail in The Psychopath Whisperer, among the principal reasons for Dr. Keel's esteemed stature are the landmark contributions he has made using two of the primary imaging tools in neuroscience, namely EEG and fMRI, which stand for electroencephalography and functional magnetic resonance imagery, respectively, techniques he kindly first explained before moving on to describing his research findings. In short, after repeatedly identifying a correlation between high scores on the psychopathy checklist and the volume and structure of certain brain areas, Dr. Keel formulated what he dubbed the paralimbic dysfunction model of psychopathy. Impressively, this is now among the most robust findings in the field. As uncomfortable as it may be for some to accept, psychopaths simply have different brains to those of us not so designated. The last major topic we discussed was whether, in light of these findings, psychopaths are born or made, which then segued into possible interventions to ameliorate these traits, or at any rate their most socially deleterious manifestations. Even after over 90 minutes, there was still so much more to discuss with Dr. Keel that he agreed to return for another interview. Of the two episodes, this discussion was more academic and sometimes perhaps a bit technical, whereas the subsequent interview explored such topics as serial killers, 
how they are represented in popular culture, and Dr. Keel's take on the raft of recent books on psychopaths aimed at a general readership. This is not to suggest that you should not listen to this episode, of course, which provides many extraordinary insights into the nature of psychopathy by one of the world's top experts, but I also hope you will listen to part two when it appears. At the risk of repeating myself, as I have previously done on earlier episodes, while we discuss many aspects of Dr. Keel's excellent book, there is never a substitute for actually reading it. And, again in repetitive mode, I highly recommend all listeners do so. While we are on the subject of saying that which has been said before, please seriously consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, as this will potentially help the podcast to widen its reach. Also, please give some thought, should you be so moved, to giving a donation via the podcast's Patreon page, a link to which is provided in the show notes. Thank you again to everyone who has listened to Skeptically Curious so far, and I dearly hope you all keep doing so as long as I keep posting episodes. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Ken Keel. Welcome to Skeptically Curious, Dr. Kent Kiel. Thank you very much. I'm really honored and excited to be talking to you today. You're such a major figure in the field of psychopathy, which I hope we will delve into at some length today. But before we get started, I always like to ask my guests about their background. I mean, in your case, you give quite a substantial rundown in your great book, The Psychopath Whisperer. But if maybe you could give an abbreviated version of the greatest hits in your professional and academic career. Sure. So I um, basically started, you know, this quest to try to understand and, you know, dive into the, the psychopathic mind as an undergraduate at UC Davis. I did a degree in, in uh, psychology and neuroscience. Um, I was very fortunate and had great timing, you know, just academically to intersect with a number of scholars who were very well known and, and great mentors to me. So one was uh, Michael Levinson. He's, he had studied and done psychopathy research as his dissertation, and we ended up, you know, writing and publishing an assessment method um, that is used in kind of student populations to measure these psychopathic traits. And then um, uh, also, you know, worked with someone named Michael Gazaniga. He was a very well-known neuroscientist. Um, and I worked in his brand new Center for Neuroscience. So I got a lot of training on different brain imaging techniques. And just a, just a, it was really in a, a, just a great environment. Um, and they all helped recruit uh, my advisor in graduate school, Robert Hare, you know, to take me as a student. So they flew him down, have him give talks. We had dinners and all sorts of things. And eventually he took me as a student. So I went to the University of British Columbia to work under Robert Hare. Robert Hare is obviously known for developing the, the psychopathy checklist, which is the instrument that's used by forensic systems to assess psychopathic traits. And, and while in Vancouver, I worked in a very unique maximum security prison where the Department of Corrections in Canada brought all of the highest risk inmates together for a treatment program. And so the rates of, you know, individuals, the rates of psychopathy were over 50%. We had an extremely unique sample. And I worked there for, you know, seven years, basically doing interviews, assessments, spent a lot of weekends, holidays, and was just uh, just had an abundance of the kind of just diversity of just fascinating clinical cases. And during that time, you know, we were able to work with, uh, collaborate with the Canada Corrections Department and transport for research purposes uh, over 50 men from maximum security out to the university and and we did mri scans with them and those provided us with the the very first brain images of individuals with psychopathy and so that was like the 
the burgeoning beginning of my career. Then um, Dr. Hare retired. One of my other advisors was recruited away to Europe. And so there I was kind of as this fledgling, you know, postdoc. And I went out on the job market and I and I ended up accepting a position at Yale University to help formulate a new collaboration with a place, a place called the Institute of Living, which is this the third oldest, oldest asylum in the United States. It's a very beautiful facility located in Hartford. It has this long, rich history. They did a lot of originally pioneering psychosurgery work years ago. They And then they kind of went away from research and then they've got an endowment that came through a donor and then they started it back up. And I was able to help formulate this Olin Neuropsychiatry Research Center, one of the first faculty. And so when I was in Connecticut, we recruited people from the community. We started, um, you know, it was just a lesson in, in for me even is that, you know, if you if, if individuals with, you know, psychopathic traits aren't willing to show up for parole meetings, why do you think they'd show up for research meetings? And so we ended up spending most of our time trying to recruit them, trying to maintain them. And eventually I got I got recruited. Me and a colleague were both recruited to New Mexico. And New Mexico was willing and has a very interesting just at the time political landscape. That is the you know, the, even the governor was involved in our recruitment. You know, one of the senators for our state was involved in the recruitment. And um, we came to help uh, to UNM, the University of New Mexico, and this Mind Research Network, and which is a nonprofit research institute. And the, the institute purchased for me a, a, a unique mobile MRI system. And the governor and the senator provided, you know, to open the doors to, to doing research with uh, prisoners. And then, of course, as you jump through all of the different hoops that are required for, for ensuring, you know, safety of the inmates and confidentiality and all the protections that are necessary for working with inmates in the United States, we've started, a, you know, started doing, uh, you know, that work. And now it's been over a decade, we've scanned more than 5,000 inmates. Um, we've expanded to other states. We now work in five prisons in Wisconsin, as well as New Mexico. And we have been able to answer questions that w- we were never able to answer before and answer them with, you know, the very, the largest, you know, samples, um, you know, in the world. So, so some, some of our studies have over a thousand subjects in them at this point. And, you know, that really helps, that really helps push the science forward, but also helps, you know, understand just the, you know, kind of the effect size, how, how significant are these effects? Do they have clinical significance? Are they ready to be used in a clinical environment? And so I've, I've basically, you know, uh, since then have just really enjoyed living in New Mexico and enjoyed the, the collaborations and, and the work that we've done. And I have a great team. We have over 30 staff who, before COVID, we go out to, you know, over uh, 10 prisons every day. And uh, you now we have a whole fleet of cars that everybody takes out and goes out and does the research and comes back. And it, it's really been a, a unique environment and a unique opportunity to do some nice science. And, and frankly, we do a lot of treatment studies. And so we've been able to start and help, you know, the forensic populations implement treatment that they might otherwise have the resources to. And so it's been, it's been lovely. And that, you know, that's an, in a nutshell, that's the the trajectory of my my career, I feel I often feel just very fortunate. The timing and the and the opportunities and um, you know the people that have been in the decision making you know trees, I feel have we've worked really well together. And so it's it's been a um, it's been a very fascinating career for sure. Yeah, I was particularly struck when I reread the Psychopath Whisperer recently in preparation for this interview because when I first read it not long after publication, I didn't know as much about neuroscience or psychology and just to see the kind of names that you've worked with, of course, the the granddaddy of psychopath research, Robert Hare, and then Michael Gazaniga and even Carl Friston, well, not maybe directly, but with his, I mean, he, he was one of the pioneers of the program that MRIs use in the early days of imaging and even John Nash 
yeah. the great mathematician. He recruited you to the Mind Research Network, which is, which is an, a fantastic name, by the way, for any institution. I would love to work at something like that. So, that yeah, it's really been incredibly impressive. We, we're definitely going to delve more into your pioneering research. But one of the goals, I guess you could call it for my podcast, is to promote the scientific method. And you're a very prominent scientist in your field, neuroscience, psychopathy, psychology. So I, I'd like to ask my guests who have thus far been of different fields, how they define the scientific method, as well as, you know, I call my podcast Skeptically Curious, because I, I think skepticism sure. in the scientific sense is vital. It's not the way it's often used that word. But if you could give us your opinion or uh, your insights into what you take to be the scientific method and, and scientific skepticism. Sure. So for me, I mean, I think I was grounded very early. Uh, my, you know, one of my first jobs as an undergraduate was teaching research methods. Um, and I have always felt, and, and one of my earliest advisors, Deborah Long, her, she was a psycholinguist, a professor at UC Davis. And she recognized early that I just have this, um, I basically think experimentally. I think, you know, about developing testing hypotheses, uh, acquiring the right size data sets, testing, retesting, applying new mathematical you know, models and principles um, and moving forward. So to me, you know, the scientific method is essentially uh, an, a, just a, a continuing testing, retesting of um, and the development of hypotheses that have an empirical basis that you can continue to formulate hypotheses or even anti-hypotheses and then test them and kind of evaluate the robustness. And, and that's what I mentioned earlier was there's significance in psychology, which is some t-test between means, let's say, and then there's then there's clinical significance, which is that you know uh, uh, how different are these types of things. So, for example, we just had a paper uh, we're working on right now, which showed that uh, education level was a predictor of of reoffending. And as we dove into the data, it became clear that you know the means were only there were 11.2 years of education or or 12.1 years of education, and the real difference there was it's not not necessarily it was statistically significant, the difference, but it wasn't necessarily meaningful until you really looked into the data, which is that the data showed that if you got a general education degree or a high school diploma, it was protective of, of reoffending. And there's a lot of emphasis in the correctional system to try to get inmates, you know, forensic incarcerated individuals to get them uh, through this type of educational hurdle. And so it was really interesting to see that even though it was not a big difference between uh, the means it had clinical significance in that if those who did get their GED, it was protective against relapsing to new crime. Um, and so I think if anything in my lab, my my students and postdocs will tell you is that I'm very pedantic about the analysis and 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 how we go about writing it. And it was this comes back to a a colleague named Manny Donchin, who was for years the chair of psychology at the University of Illinois, one of the top-ranked psychology programs in the country. And I, 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 um, I don't think I ever interviewed for a job there, but I definitely did a lot of. I worked a lot with Manny on on a variety of his. Uh, we studied some of the same things, uh, the P300 component. And we published and talked about it, and I attended some of his meetings. and And Manny said to me one night over drinks, he goes, "You know." I don't even read introductions or discussions of papers anymore because those things evolve over time. What matters is the methods. What matters is the sample and the methods and the effects because the introduction and discussion will change over time. And so he said, what's most important is how reliable are the effects that you found and reproducible. And, you know, and this is, this is all part of my early training, even before, you know, we ended up in this quagmire of failing, failure to reproduce in, in psychology and a lot of these little behavioral effects failing to, to replicate. And, and so 
I, I also really concerned. Psychology is, you know, a field that is, is often about measurement. It's about how you quantify something, about how you, you know, decide to do a test. And early in my career, I used self-report instruments to try to measure. So this is a pen and paper, a set of questions. You hand it to somebody, they fill it out. And then you come back and you spend a lot of time analyzing and you're trying to derive information. Well, with the inmates that we work with, with the, a lot of times, you know, first of all, they may have, they may struggle with, with reading everything that you might normally, you know, do. They might struggle with the insight necessary to fill out questions about affect or empathy or emotion. They might not want to fill it out and just fill it out randomly and, and you still will get a valid score. They, there's a lot of reasons that self-report instruments are potentially problematic. And, and this goes all the way up and through things like we, we, we really carefully assess things like trauma history because it's, we know it's, it's a very treatable, you know, having a post-traumatic stress symptoms or other types of things are one of the most treatable things in psychology. And so if those are relevant to forensic, you know, to in, inmates, then we want to be able to put them in a program that's going to help address those issues. And so, but we used to use self-report instruments to get their background and history. And inmates often don't recognize that their experiences were different than what most of us would call normal experiences. And so they weren't filling them out as being different. So we ended up developing this expert rater assessment. And it's an interview, clinical-based, extensive review of their background and information. And then we score them like we do the psychopathy checklist on specific items. And that has made a huge difference for understanding the background. So I think measurement in psychology and, and measurement as it relates to the psych you know, as it relates to the scientific method, it's just critical that you're doing it as accurately as possible and that you don't try to overinterpret, you know, your these measurement things. But then from a from a neuroscience perspective, it's it's also, you know, the, the MRI scanner is, a, is an amazing system for, for a different unit of measure, for allowing us to acquire data that is, uh, is, is distinct from these other psychological domains. So even though our some of our psychological domains will measure impulsivity, you know, we'll measure it with self-report, we'll measure it with neuropsych testing, we'll measure impulsivity with you know, how people perform on a task. And then, but the MRI can also quantify, you know, the brain, the hemodynamic response of the brain as it relates. And then each of those different units of measure may have unique insights into someone's, you know, impulsivity into whether or not there be, you know, stop, they'll act without thinking when they get out of prison, for example. And so we've been able to try to measure and quantify and look at the predictive value of each of those different units of measure. And then it's about replication. Honestly, early in my career, we, we published series of papers showing that some of the tasks that we were using, some of the methods we were using showed high reproducibility. That is, you'd scan somebody today and then scan them, you know, six weeks from now, and you'd get the same answers. And that's, that's still something that's not well understood in, in, in imaging circles. And so I think that, you know, for our purposes, when we're measuring trait-related behaviors and trait-related outcomes, we should be having highly reproducible, you know, effects. And so that's that's the stuff that I drill into my students and postdocs is is that really the robustness. And we're in a very fortunate time because we have data sets now that are large enough that permit these types of analyses to be done, you know, routinely where you can have five or six hundred subjects who you have outcomes data on, sometimes out to 10 years or longer. And that just really allows you to um, to answer these questions that people are really concerned about scientific method. And then, of course, I do a um, one of the other things I really find fascinating as relevant, I think, to this is, is you know, I, 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 tip, I lecture to a lot of judicial audiences. So I, I lecture to judges, I lecture to do judicial education, I lecture to attorneys, both defense and prosecutors, and especially in the United States, where the adversarial legal system is so different than a lot of other parts in the world. 
it's fascinating to just see how they consume the science that you do or, or, or their questions. So, you know, judges and the system that we have here has to make big decisions about people that are involved in the criminal justice system, whether it's to give them bail or not, or to give them, you know, what type of prison to send them to, or what types of treatments that they should be made available to them, or what if they're eligible for parole or not. I mean, big decisions that are very costly for society. I mean, the, the cost associated with some of these decisions is enormous, millions of dollars. And so, what I find interesting is that the judges often just want better data, even if the data is new or, or even controversial. If it can help them in any way make a more accurate decision, they, they want access to the data. Whereas there's other groups, often academics like myself, who are, if you will, conservative about implementing your science into real world settings. They, they'd be more conservative about wanting to do that, whereas the system wants the information. And so then you're in this quagmire of, well, how do I help public safety and minimize, you know, individual, I don't want to, but I also don't want to have a cost individual liberties or something else. But then you have with these judges, they just end up making these decisions that are low risk. So they'll just keep someone in, incarcerated rather than release them because it's the lowest risk option. But that in the United States, they, they say it's typically like, you know, thirty dollars to $50,000 per year per inmate to keep them incarcerated at, at, at minimum security. At maximum security, it can be twice that. At supermax, three times that, you know. And then when you send them to civil commitment, which is this procedure we have in the United States in 22 states where a dangerous sex offender can be committed by the state after they serve their sentence to civil commitment. This is like a, a hospital, but it's really a maximum security prison and until, they're, until they're cured of their affliction. That's hundreds of three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year per inmate. Yeah. And I think people don't realize that, um, you know, with that amount of money, you, you could literally have, you know, four or five babysitters, you know, if you will, watching people, you know, all day long, every day, you could have much better supervision, you know, in the community, you could have just all different other types of, of uh, the, the shift of resources, you, you know, you could save just unbelievable amounts of money. I mean, we spend more on crime in the United States than all healthcare. Mm, you know, yeah, we spend more. Yeah, I mean, I thought those yeah, for whatever reason, when I was at Yale, I started playing poker with a bunch of economists and, and um, we would play these home games and hang out and they would talk about some of these numbers. And one of them said, you know, that crime is more expensive than than all mortgage debt in the United States and, and other numbers that are trillions of dollars. And I, I just was shocked. And so I really got interested in trying to, you know, understand the economic impact of some of these conditions that we study, like psychopathy, understand, you know, how, it, it makes a, a powerful argument in, in some political circles to use the economic argument rather than just a straight, well, we should be treating them argument. And, and, and I wrote some papers on this with a couple of judges and others. And, you know, it turns out that when you do implement good treatment, it, it's cost effective because it reduces bad outcomes. It yeah. reduces violent outcomes. And so that usually resonates. I've gotten other states to take up different types of treatment programs through some of this judicial education. And so that's been, you know, also very rewarding. But that's a long-winded answer to, you know, my my questions of scientific method. You know, I also I'm extremely skeptical of various assessment measures of psychopathy. So we published a series of papers, you know, that kind of indicate at least in individuals at clinical levels of the traits, we just don't have any agreement between hmm. the psychopathy checklist, expert assessments of um, self-report or, or parent and teacher ratings or other types of assessments. And I think our field really struggles with that because a lot of people want the easy way out. They want to, you know, they don't, we, we spent 12 hours interviewing and assessing each inmate, you know, and we only spent an hour scanning them. So it's the scanning is the easy part. The, the interviews, the assessments, the clinical characterization, the assessment of background, you know, history, substance use, trauma, 
you know, all of the other things they do, their psychopathy traits, um, all of these things, we spend a lot of time carefully assessing because if you don't carefully assess those traits, you're not going to find the neural correlates of them. You're not going to find a relationship between that and your brain data. And, and I just think that there's a lot of failures to replicate. There's a lot of differences between different methods that you use to assess these traits. And so I like to just draw attention to it because, you know, even your students, as they start to review the literature, they'll say, oh, that, you know, that finding supports my hypothesis and they'll, they'll put it in their introduction. And then I'll go and I'll be like, you can't include your cherry picking results in the sense to, to support this because that was an assessment in a college sample. It's non-clinical. It probably would never replicate in a clinical sample. Review the studies based on the assessment procedure in the, in the sample. So start with forensic and, and expert rater assessments like the psychopathy checklist, and then see if if there's disagreement, cite it, you know, and then if there's the next assessment procedure in students, you know, you can say that we might learn something from these samples as well. If, if, if the, you know, if our construct of psychopathy is dimensional, then maybe you get the same types of effects, just smaller hmm. in an undergraduate population than you do in a clinical population where the differences are really large. But these are, you know, these, these questions have been around since the beginning of our field. And sometimes I feel like we've made no progress. And so, the, so if, you, if anything, I would say I'm probably as skeptical of a, of a researcher in his own field as, as almost any other field. It's kind of like, you know, if you work in the field of depression, the, you know, the, the field of depression, that the, what we call depression has changed so much in the last 50 years that the research done in the 60s and 70s has no relationship to the research done today because, you know, today, everyone in the world will meet criterion for depression at some point in their life. And to me, that might be, that's helpful for, and a lot of people have written about this, but that might be helpful for, you know, helping people get a, you know, some sort of a treatment if they need it in those periods of their life. But it also, it, it really doesn't do justice to the people that are really ill that need treatment, and they can only get the treatment if it's been done on people that are similar. So I, I take a very critical review of changes in assessment procedures and how people decide when someone has a, you know, an illness or not and a mental illness. And so we're, we, we just are very pedantic about those assessment questions because we have always found that if we're, you know, and this, this is actually, you know, my advisor in grad school, Peter Little, he was the one that he, his, one of his claims to fame is that he, he hired Carl Friston out of medical school, gave him his first job. And, but Peter hired Carl originally to do symptom assessments in patients with schizophrenia uh, every week for like eight weeks or whatever. And that they were looking to do is to relate changes in symptoms to, so are there trait related behaviors in the brain imaging scans that can be measured as it relates to schizophrenia? And then are there areas that change with the symptoms? So if a person goes from having no symptoms to having positive symptoms, voices, hallucinations, their brain scan data changes. And then it goes back down as uh, if they go, if the symptoms resolve for a while. And he was able to say that, you know, and publish some pioneering work saying that you really have to look for both trait and state related symptoms. The trait stuff should replicate all over the place. The state stuff will be specific to the symptoms the patient's experiencing. So if you're studying patients in, in you know, in, in, at Yale and, and, you know, it's winter, and they're having maybe more negative symptoms for whatever reason, then then that's you need to characterize those really carefully. And then versus if you're, you know, in a sunny part of the country and they're and they're they're, they're having different symptoms for let's say positive symptoms, the, the data are going to be totally different unless you're carefully assessing. So so I think that these are, you know, just kind of issues that not everybody thinks about, not everybody is skeptical about. And um, you know, we're we really do are careful about it. And also, you know, one of the things we do is um Early on in my career, the National Institute on Drug Abuse staff there, you know, came to us and said that they wanted me and a couple of colleagues to start teaching, you know, brain imaging methods to other scientists because imaging was really new. Not a lot of people, you know, were thinking about the issues related to image analysis. And, 
we, we went ahead and created this course. We've now been doing it for 20 years, three times a year. And we usually get about 40 students signing up um, each class. And it's just really amazing. Sometimes people will come in and they just haven't ever thought about some of the issues that we talk about and, and highlight and try to train people that, you know, they need to be thinking about these things because it totally changes the interpretation of their results. And so I still think that there's a lot of well, there's a lot of good arguments about different ways people analyze the data, but there's also just a lot of times people can go through the software and get an answer, but they don't, they're not thinking about all the potential problems that can come out when there, you know, there is those types of those issues that come up. So I think, anyway, so those are just some of the pedantics, skeptical uh, skepticism, you know, and issues. And I think, and I, and I bring that to everything when I'm reviewing papers or grants or, you know, trying to help move the science forward. I, I really try to help make the papers or the grants as good as they can be. But in particular for paper review, often you'll get somebody that sends a paper to you for a review that, you know, it's, it's, it's got good data in it, but the, there might not be the, there might be a difference that you'll ask them to help do things that'll make it a little bit better because you know it should be published at some point. And so instead of just being critical of things, I like to try to be constructive and help people make uh, their work a little better. Yeah, well, thank you, because I think that kind of detailed answer is reflective of the complexity, the necessary complexity of, of science and its methodologies. Mm. Now, that's why I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to ask the next question, because as someone immersed in this field and a major figure in it, and, and I want to dig into more of the details, your work and, and some of your predecessors, but is there a kind of a dinner party answer to the question of what is a psychopath or what is psychopathy? Or, you know, if you were ever posed this, let's say on a flight somewhere or in a party, do you just not answer it? Or, or is there a, maybe a very brief answer about the salient features? Was that oh, I mean, it's that's one of the most common questions you get <laughs> is, is that, I mean, it's often, I think people take the word psychopath and they say, and they just attribute it to someone who does something bad. And and it's like an adjective in many cases where someone said that's so psychopathic, you know, lock that person up and throw away the key forever. Or, And so in of all of the things that we study, you know, in psychology, psychopathy has one of the very best assessment procedures that's that's ever been developed. I mean, honestly, so it's been I mean, there's thousands of publications on you know, just psychometrically debating, discussing its predictive value. And we're talking about the Harris psychopathy checklist. So the, the, you know, the dinner party answer is, is we assess psychopathic traits as, you know, very carefully through, you know, long historical interviews and background, you know, assessment, checking, reading of everything the person's ever done. But it's the classic symptoms are kind of a lack of empathy, guilt and remorse, an inability to kind of have insight into how your behavior impacts other people negatively, just a failure to have appreciation. They're impulsive. And these are traits that are present in all aspects of their life. It's not just in one domain, like at work. It's present at home, at work, at school, with family, with friends. And, and so it's a trait and it's present from a very early age. And so, you know, as early as age six or seven or eight, people recognize the measurement of these symptoms and you see it get worse in adolescence and then continue in adulthood. And they're just they just live lives that are staggeringly problematic and, and cause all sorts of, of, of often interactions with criminal justice system or lawsuits or, you know, just broken relationships, families basically disowning them and struggling with that. And, and so it's those central characteristics, though, that those lack of empathy, guilt and remorse that are that are really the most salient clinical features. But psychopaths are also very manipulative. They, they make up, I like the word mendacity. It's a, it's a word that indicates they don't, it's not quite, it's kind of in between, it's in between lying on purpose and confabulation. And so confabulation is something that we see where 
people with mental illnesses sometimes just make up stories and they're just out of thin air. Whereas individual psychopathy kind of create stories or things around them to present in a better light or present differently. And, and there's, they're kind of easily checked, but they're, they're not quite to the point where it's complete confabulation, but they also just their way of life is they're just, they never tell the truth about anything sometimes. And so it's really, you know, quite easy and amazing to check on those things. And then they're also really talkative. They also, you know, they, glibness is a, is a central characteristic. And then, you know, psychopaths often come across as quite likable. I mean, they're quite entertaining. They're interesting to talk with. They're, and then as you, but as you, I mean, I often will send undergraduates in to interview them without having had let them read the interview or the background about them. And they'll come out and they'll be like, well, that guy was so nice. Like, I can't, you know, I just found it, you know, surprising that he's doing 20 years in prison. I, I just don't believe that, you know, that that's, that's accurate or whatever. And then you let them read the file and they're like, this isn't even the same person. Like, how is this? And then they go back and re-interview the person now armed with that information. And the person gives a completely different interview. And, and, and uh, as they're probed and asked about these different things, and you ask them, you know, why did you not talk about these things before? And they're like, well, that's the old me. You know, I, di- I didn't think you needed to know those things. I just want to present the new me. And then as you study and watch them in the prison and how much trouble they get in or problems that I have and everything else, you realize like, you know, nothing's changed about that person. But it's often very difficult to... Um, understand and see the symptoms if you're not experienced to to be able to recognize them. And that's why the background information is so essential, I think, towards towards doing that. But um, yeah, and then I'll often, you know, rally off a variety of different, you know, case studies like I wrote about in my book, you know, that are just staggering, like you just can't, they're just so different. You know, they're in New Mexico, for whatever reason, we find, you know, the the base rate of psychopathy is, is lower than some of the other prisons that we've worked in. That is, there's there's fewer individuals that really have clinical levels of those traits. Uh, as we've matriculated into the supermax facility, it turns out that New Mexico Corrections, for whatever reasons, has has essentially identified, because of their problematic behavior, those that are high on psychopathy, and moved them into the maximum security facilities to minimize the problems that they can cause. And um, so because they're better managed, movement, everything. And so when we work in there, we see that the rates of psychopathy are more like what we would see, what we would expect, you know, one in four or five meet criterion, sometimes even higher than that in different pods. But nevertheless, New Mexico has different issues that ends up people in prison than psychopathy, I guess. But in Wisconsin, we generally, you know, we've worked there with colleagues because, you know, they have, you know, five times as many people. And so they have five times as many inmates and five times as many subjects to study and work with. And, and, uh, and, and so that's been where we've gotten more of our, our clinical levels, uh, patients, they end up, but it's anywhere you go in the world to give a lecture, you know, and, you know, most most groups that have decriminalized substance use or substance abuse or even minor trafficking decriminalize it so that and that's half of the populations of prisoners in, in the United States, at least half. And then what you end up doing then is you I think you increase the you end up finding individuals that have much higher levels of psychopathic traits because they're the ones committing the violent acts and committing you know repetitive acts. And and so in, in a lot of the European facilities that I've worked with, you, you end up seeing that there's just a lot there's a lot more of the clinical populations you want. Canada was the same way is, is that um, it's hard to get yourself into maximum security in Canada. And, um, and so you get, you end up finding a higher rate of individuals with these traits. They do tend to matriculate into those facilities. And so in that sense, you know, we've also struggled in, a, I mean, are we having a representative sample of, uh, of psychopaths, if you will? And, you know, we've done some variety of different calculations, but we would estimate that about 80 percent of psychopaths are going to be incarcerated in some facility in North America for some period of time, you know, just based on the epidemiology of the construct and the assessment. And that's, again, at clinical levels, 30 or above, 30 out of 40 on our measure. And so 
So we, we do believe we have a representative population, but that doesn't mean we don't find people in the community um, who have high levels of these traits. It just means that those are, they're pretty rare. Yes, and that's intriguing insight into comparative populations. Now, of course, psychopathy is somewhat anomalous among the general public in that it's a subject of great intrigue, but also many misconceptions, which hopefully this podcast will help to dispel. And so you can just briefly talk about this. You'd actually touch on this in the book and provided insight for me. And I'd actually forgotten some of those sections. So it was handy for me to reread. So the difference between psychosis and psychopathy, and then also a far more common one I find in talking to people, and you explained this quite brilliantly the book, and I think in a very brief way, but makes it very understandable, between sociopathy and psychopathy. So sure. Disentangle yeah. those confusions, please. Yeah, no, that's very common for people to confuse those various terms. So psychosis is, you know, an individual who's suffering from symptoms related to like hallucinations, delusions, they're having hearing voices that are telling them to do things. And this is commonly found in, in conditions like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, and those have an onset typically in the early 20s. And then, you know, schizophrenia is just a chronic relapsing remitting condition. And, and psychopaths usually, there's just no relationship between uh, or, or extremely rare for someone to have both lack of empathy, guilt and remorse at clinical levels and those symptoms. We just don't ever see that in the, in the clinical realm. So, so psychosis and, and psychopathy just don't really intersect. The 99% of individuals with psychopathy don't end up having any of those symptoms. The sociopath and the psychopath was, is always an interesting thing. It, it really comes down to when somebody was trained. And so, you know, you get um, the behaviorist era in psychology, kind of the 1950s, 60s, some, even into the 70s, you know, you, you are, it was basically you were a blank slate when you were born. And so the Skinnerian perspective, which is, you know, B.F. Skinner. Mm-hmm. And the Skinnerian idea is that, you know, it's all environment that shapes you and creates these symptoms and and behaviors and sociopathic personality disorder was determined, I think it was DSM two and three, because it was social forces make you so sociopathy. So um, we now know that, um, of course, it's always a combination of biology and, and social forces that create pretty much every uh, mental health condition and diet and exposure to toxins, all sorts of different things. Um, and so we don't use that term in academic parlance anymore. It's not, it's, it's clear that there isn't just a social forces you know, uh, perspective. So we don't, occasionally people will use it in the media or, you know, somebody trained in that era will still, you know, it'll pop up in some paper or something. Um, But it's not a term that's used. I I haven't seen it in a straightforward academic publication in 20 years. Um, So sorry, so so the term has basically been retired academically. Yes. Yes, that's that's correct. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I, I can tell you that it might've even been replaced, but because it has, it had such a connotation of, the only ideological process with social forces, it's just not used. And, and the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Illness that's used in the United States typically for canonical assessment of mental illness and, and classification of mental illness, lots of issues with it, lots of different, you know, uh, problems. But the term was tossed out, I think, you know, probably in the, in the 80s. So, you know, there's sometimes there's sometimes a little bit of use to, to talking about it in courses or, or classes because social forces can have a, a, a significant influence. And, and, and the psychopathy and psychopathy, you know, is a term that has been around for almost 200 years and it has an evolution in terminology as well. But psychopathy and sociopathy basically were assessing this very similar symptoms, very similar traits. 
but the psychopathy world, which really, I think the first meeting of, of, of about psychopathy was in the, in the 1905, 1906. And, and it was there that people from around the world came together. And one of the big uh, central outputs of that meeting, which I found great, you know, and really, I wish we would do this all the time, was that there was a list of all the symptoms that everybody thought were this, like the dinner conversation symptoms. What are the things that you see in your patients that everybody would agree in around the world you know, that they would then scale the symptoms from the most salient down to the least salient, but still people see. And and that list is is still basically what, you know, Robert Heron instantiated into the psychopathy checklist. It's what Harvey Cleckley wrote about in The Mask of Sanity. It's of what, you know, all these clinicians used um, to, to measure and, and to develop procedures for assessing these traits and characterizing them and identifying how they're different from others. So psychopathy has been around forever. I, I sometimes wish we might have had a different word because Psychopathy has such a pejorative nature and this popular conception. And sometimes people, you know, confuse it with just psychopathology, which is any kind of, you know, abnormal symptom. And, and but uh, anyway, uh, it's probably not my role to change the word or change the terminology. I, I tend to just try to provide, like in my book, this is what we mean by this clinically and, uh, you know, psychologically when we're doing this in research or clinical context. And I do a lot of education again to just try to help people understand this is what we mean. And so, so, but those are the differences. The sociopathy, psychopathy thing is, is really just an evolution and terminology and, and etiology. But in psychopathy, we also have, since the 1940s, uh, uh, clinicians have written about that there might be two types of individuals, two, at least two pathways to get to high levels of psychopathic traits. And one is primarily biological. They refer to that as the primary pathway. And then there's the so-called secondary pathway, which is obviously a person has to have some intrinsic constitution or temperamental you know, ability to be set up this way. Um, and then environmental pressures kind of suppress the development of normal affective responsiveness. And you end up with someone who could have higher levels of these traits, but also has concomitant higher anxiety levels compared to the primary version. And, you know, there's some evidence that anxiety does moderate some of these traits and, you know, at really high levels. And we, we contribute to this literature and have been looking into it. Um, I, I still think there's just a lot left to do. Um, and we don't know a lot about whether you would treat them differently if you were developing a program or would you uh, manage them differently because their risk for different types of crimes is different. And so there's just in a kind of an active area of, of current research. Um, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of people doing, you know, this type of work. So th there's maybe only three or four groups in the world that are actively working with people who have clinical levels of these traits. And, you know, despite our best efforts, it's, you know, to train and put out more people that do this work, it's still, it still sometimes is a bit of a struggle. So well, I'm, I'm they're not an easy, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm glad that yeah, I was gonna... some of the, uh, sorry, do you want to add something? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, even even though we screen and, and then try to uh, inoculate all the people we hire and, and work and, and try to work, a lot of people can't are not comfortable working in a maximum security prison. I mean, it's just not for everyone. And so even though a lot of undergraduates will come through and say, oh, my gosh, I would just think it would be fascinating. You know, the, the there's always this little sense of fear or sense of concern and. And, and, and that often, and, and these guys are, you know, they can be, they can be pretty mean sometimes, you know, in conversations and, um, and the things that they've done can sometimes shock people. And that often, for me, I, I, for whatever reason, I find it just clinically fascinating. And, but for sometimes people just end up, I can't go back in, you know, I just had this happen with another staff member who, you know, did about a year working and then finally said, you know, it's really helpful for me to have that internship because I've decided that I just can't do this the rest of my life. I, it's too, it's just stressful for me. And I'm like, well, then this is, 
I would say that we had a positive outcome of your internship because the last thing that you would want to do is train for six years and then realize you don't want to, you don't want to work with them. And so, um, you know, because, you know, you take a person who has depression and you get them up and out of bed and back to work and you feel like clinically that's a success. You know, you try to treat somebody with high levels of these traits and then they go out and kill someone. And then, I mean, how you deal with that or how you, how you, uh, you know, cope with that is most people find it fascinating, like listening to this podcast or the topic is intrinsically interesting, but do people want to make a career of it? That's, that's rare. And so that's, that's, you generally see that. And so it's hard to grow the field because not a lot of people end up leaving and going off and continuing. I mean, Bob Hare has only two students out of hundreds that he did over 30 years. Myself and Adele Forth are the only ones that are still doing this type of work. And then, you know, Joe Newman, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin for 30 years too, he, he has his first student and his last student are the only ones that are still doing this work. And in between, I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how many, there's just not a lot of, it's fascinating to be honest. Um, and so I, I, I hope that I can continue to have students that come through and want to go do this work, but it's, it's, it is not for everyone. Perhaps you've just intimated a potential career path for me. Should I actually, you know, try <laughs> to move into a psychological realm in, in an academic sense? And others, perhaps. Now, I'm glad in your last answer there, you shaded into my next question, which was great, about the, the history of the field. Now, your book gives a great outline of the history of the field going back to the 19th century, but you also reveal that indigenous cultures, you cite the Nigerian tribe as well, oh, sure. as, well as um, Inuits, that they actually have have terms for what we would call psychopaths. I think a lot of people don't appreciate a how old the feel actually is, even in the Western context, as a yeah. of academic research, and then also the fact that you find these types of individuals in indigenous societies. And and of course the German researcher who coined the name J. L. A. Koch, I believe his pronunciation if he's German, yes. and he coined that term psychopath. And, and I was also surprised that you know all the negative valence that the term has. It actually is a, quite an empathic term in a sense. It means suffering soul, which I, well, right. I didn't know that anyway. But let's move the story, I think, forward. You mentioned Dr. Hervey Cleckley, you know, his famous book, The Mask of Sanity. And then, of course, someone that you studied under, Dr. Robert Hare, and what I believe is the gold standard of assessment, the psychopath checklist. So if you could yes. explain to people who might not know what that is and how that's used in a yeah. method. Sure. So the... Um the Hervey Cleckley, of course, to start with him, I mean, he, he, how, how do we come about these, these traits that we call, you know, psychopathic and, and, or how do we really start with those from assessment? And one way was this, and this is where Cleckley started was that uh, consensus amongst all the scientists about what are these traits from around the world. And then they created that list, you know, of, of, I think there was at least 25 traits related to that are, and again, these traits are sometimes designed to be different from you know, what you might find in other, you know, uh, patients. So they're different from what you see in depression or obsessive compulsive disorder. So they're trying to differentiate what traits differentiate these individuals from others, et cetera. Um, and what are unique? And it's definitely the affective traits that are the unique things, this lack of empathy, guilt, and remorse. But Cleckley then went and, and, and in his work, he did both worked in forensic populations, but he also had a, a very, you know, large clinical practice where families would send to him for treatment or management or counseling, you know, uh, individuals that their, their children generally, uh, adult children, if you will, but they were children who, um, were just leading this life of disaster and to try to help come up with ways. And he used all of those case studies to help further refine and kind of characterize the symptoms that he felt were essential. And then Bob Hare, my advisor, what he did was he said, when he went to this, uh, it, so NATO often puts on advanced study institutes, sponsors 
you know, these uh, institutes where you sequester people in a, you, you get all the scientists from all the NATO countries um, together in a, in a small fishing village or something. This is what we did in Portugal one year. And um, everybody stays for two weeks and is literally just a brainstorming sessions to discuss and say, what are the controversies in the field and how can we move it forward? And I believe there was a 1970 was the one that Dr. Hare first created. And there it was that everybody was talking about different symptoms and different ways of assessing. And so Bob left that meeting and then started listing all of the traits of psychopathy and then scoring them, you know, zero, the trait doesn't apply. One, the trait applies in many respects and two, the trait most definitely applies. And then he had his students go out and he himself went into the facilities and assessed a couple of hundred men. And then they look at what are what's known as the psychometrics of it. So how many of these symptoms are, are overlapping and are they similar or how many of these symptoms are distinct and, and then looked at all of the different ways that they grouped together. And eventually, you know, they had some symptoms. Uh, originally, I think there were 22 items. And then they, some of the items just were very poorly, they didn't have good properties. They didn't have good psychometric properties. So they were deleted. And then what they ended up with was 20 items scored on this three-point scale. Zero, the person doesn't have it. One, the person has this in some respects. And then two, this is most definitely, this person has this, this trait in, in all domains of their life and for the majority of their life. And then that's the instrument that we currently use. Those 20 items are those things that I mentioned, empathy, guilt, remorse, impulsivity, lying, manipulative behavior, superficial charm. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, they're promiscuous. There's early behavioral problems, adolescent problems, adult problems, you know, behavioral problems, their hotheadedness, et cetera. And so when you have those 20 characteristics, and, and one of the strengths of the psychopathy checklist is that from 1985, it hasn't changed. And so the scoring criterion are the same. The, the items are the same. And so that means there's almost, you know, 40 years of rigor that has been, I mean, it has been subjected to every possible test that has been tested in, in all of these different, you know, from indigenous populations to, you know, all over the world, people have been used it and, and, and published with it. Um, and some people don't like it, some people, and they publish and try to, you know, find problems with it and other people, you know, so for whether you like it or not, it's just been one of the most tested and retested and, um, and beat on things. And it has really held up because it's still many countries use it because it predicts future violence it predicts future bad outcomes. So somebody who scores high on that, who's in, in criminal justice involved population is more likely to reoffend than someone who scores low. And in our work, it's generally one of the top two or three most predictive, and certainly for violent outcomes, it's generally considered to be one of the most uh, significant predictors. It's not without its problems, though. It takes a long time to assess. It takes training. You know, it can be manipulated like any test. You often will get some cases where someone will just fill it out and say someone's really high on all these traits, they don't like them. And they're just, that's just abusing, you know, misusing the test, but it happens. That was part of the development of the test. And so then what that allows you to do is then people from around the world, if they've assessed the measure, you know, and done it, done it reliably, which most researchers really spend a lot of time making sure they're doing it carefully. You then develop this literature from all over the place that then can be used and extrapolated and, and brought together. And, and that's one of the, the biggest strength of our field is this um, harmony that you get between various groups and using the same instrument. And so that, that has really been, I think, one of my, the re that's the reason I went to work with Robert Hare was because he was known as for developing this. And he did a lot of other interesting things in psychopathy as well. But, you know, it, it really has been what's grounded our field. It's the it's central focus and and uh the anchor you know if you will yes 
And so we, we like we're right now in the middle of uh, testing new items. So we've we've tried to see as I went back through partially for my book, you know, originally my his, history chapter in my book was like 100 pages. The editors were like, you got to cut this down, you know, it's way too long. And I was like, maybe I should just write a book on the history of psychopathy because I found it so interesting to do that work at that time. And then now with Google Books and everything, you know, all these old books are all available online. You don't have to waste days and weeks trying to find them in a, in a, in a weird library. Everything's available. And so I was able to go back and read all of those books and read some of the original thinking and, and some of the symptoms that didn't get concluded originally, maybe in the testing set. And so one of mine, is, the favorite one is like rumination. So this is a, you know, stopping and worrying or thinking about the future or the rumination is something that you find in patients with obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, they, they leave the house and then they go, oh my God, did I leave the stove on? They go back in. It just sits in there and percolates and psychopaths have none of that. They, they never ruminate about anything. And so I've always felt like the absence of ruminations should be a central characteristic. And it's not really focused, it's not a symptom in, in the psychopathy checklist, but I, I believe it's very related. So we wanted to test these different things and, um, and assess them. I mean, I, I think I mentioned this in a book, or, or at least I wrote about it originally, I don't remember if it got cut or not. But you know, if you want to have a psychopath look at you funny, you, you would say, you know, have you ever worried about leaving the stove on? And they'll go, they'll look at you like, what the hell? You know, like, what? Why would I worry? Like, no. And so that's like a, that's one of my favorite probe questions, you know, for people is, is to ask, ask inmates that question. And, you know, and then you get, you get the converse of that. You'll be like, oh, that's happened before. I worry about like, did I leave an appliance on or leave something on? I go back in and check and you're like, okay, check that one off. Like, you know, I bet this interview is going to follow another path than what I was thinking with this person. So yeah, so those are definitely uh, some of the things, but that's, that's, that's the assessment instrument that we use. Yeah. And no, again, it's, uh, sorry, I just, I love the fact that this question actually takes us back to the, the second one about the scientific method, that even something as esteemed and well established as the psychopathic checklist is still up for revision and, and, and refinement, I guess is a better term. You're still actually probing it and still trying to optimize it. I, I really love that. Yeah, it's, I'll be honest. So Bob, you know, when I was in his lab, he would say that, you know, there has to just be an, he, he was really resistant to ever, you know, changing the scoring criterion, because then the literature that was developed and everything before might not be applicable. And so he said, for all of its strengths and weaknesses, it was the initial stability. I mean, that this, 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 this longitudinal stability of it is one of its main strengths. And so he's also and he's still active in, in research, even though he's in his 80s. And he's still active in research and says, and was, we were talking about this recently, is that, you know, it maybe there are other symptoms that we should be testing and that we could just decide if there's a, you know, psychopathy revised, revised that we could come up with checklist and, and, and if it has predictive utility. So that wouldn't, you, you would always have two scores. You would have the original score and then you might have a revised score and you would just be looking to see, does the revised scores have value? And um, while we're on this topic, I'll tell you one of, you know, the things that, that I think has been very central to my current thinking is that even though we have a very good assessment, you know, the scores range from zero to 40. So the average North American male will score like four out of 40, just the average person on the street. And then the average incarcerated individual will score around, you know, 20, 22, so halfway. And then the clinical levels we usually reserve for about 30 and by the point that you get to 34, you really know you have somebody that is is very high levels of these traits. And my lab knows, and, and anyone you train will learn this, is that it's really easy to score people who are low, and it's really easy to score people that are high. The struggle is the in-betweens, the people that have some of these traits and not all of these traits, and that's where the debate is. And 
and getting it accurate. But even, you know, one of the things that happens is, you know, the scores range from zero to two, but sometimes you're sitting there and you're talking to somebody and you're like, oh my God, he's a four out of two. You know, there's just, he meets every single classic criterion. There's just no reason he's not a two, but I don't know that that, I just don't know that I, I really wish I had a higher range because I need, I would like to measure these outliers. I would like to measure these things. So like in this case, I worked on with Brian Dugan, who was a serial killer in Illinois. And when I interviewed him, I, I was just like, wow. I mean, he's, he, I think he got an official score of like 38 out of 40, but he was really like a 50 out of 40. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when you have somebody there? And I think what we find that's interesting is that the brain imaging data doesn't care what your score is. It just is the data. And so when we find brain imaging data predicts, so you find psychopathy predicts reoffending. And then when you add brain imaging of something like the anterior cingulate or the amygdala or the orbital frontal cortex regions we know are involved in psychopathic traits, their, their value actually adds utility to predicting bad outcomes mm -hmm. because yeah. it might be capturing that the 50 out of 40, it might be capturing those that we didn't measure well, even with this great test we call the, you know, the, the psychopathy checklist, it, it still might be yes. that there's, that there's, that there's information that we're not capturing. And that's, that's how I like to think about these different units of measure. You know, this is, again, gets back to your scientific method questions is that, is that that brain imaging data often has additional value to it. And that value is predictive. And so when, that's why we like using the brain data. Is it, more predictive than than the measure of psychopathy? I don't know. I mean, I think those are those are good questions. When we get to multivariate techniques, which is using, you know, kind of lots of different areas of the brain that are related to psychopathy instead of just one, and you ask, you know, does each does the measure of each one help to improve the outcome uh, to a point where there's some and, and all of those variables are being used in this multivariate framework, that ends up often being our, our best way of, of differentiating yes. and using it. Um, I just think that we're at an interesting point in, in psychological science, which is that as we think about psychology as measurement and assessment of things, we can also apply the same thing to the, to the brain imaging data. And, and so the brain imaging data might, for example, be a better measure of IQ than is, you know, a WACE, a traditional IQ test. That is the, the regions that are associated with IQ in the brain might predict your SAT scores or your, or your GRE scores or whatever tests you might do in the future might predict your occupational outcome or other things better than your, you know, IQ test. And I, that makes some people really nervous because you, you kind of eliminate free will and decision-making and how you go about filling those things out. But on the other hand, if your goal is really to predict, then why not use the best measure yes. for predicting? Yeah. So that's what we refer to as, as neuroprediction is, is can we use the neuroscience data? Can we find or, or quantify the neuroscience data in such a way that it does predict better? And we're getting, we get better and better at this all the time. And, and as the methods are, get more reliable and as we have bigger samples and we have, it, it's really is interesting time um, to, 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 to study these effects. Yes, and you've again beautifully preempted or led into my next question because this is where the story of the history of psychopathy leads into your story because your pioneering work has paralleled or been enabled by new techniques to go beyond psychometric assessment and actually peer into the brain of individuals. So there are two primary methods to gauge, I suppose, neural activity. So that's EEG and an yeah. fMRI. And you've done, as a said amazing work using both of those techniques so maybe for those who might not know what are they and then we can talk about your specific studies 
Sure. So EEG is simply the measure. So your brain is like a million different little batteries, billions of different batteries. And each of those batteries has, you know, a collection of cells will have some penetrance. So the, the electroactivity can be measured passively on the scalp. And so, you know, if you're processing sounds or processing, you know, pictures or processing something else, we can quantify and measure with little electrodes and usually in a little like swim cap, we can measure your brain, you know, EEG, your brain's little batteries. And that technique has been around for almost 200 years. And there's been a lot of insights developed. In fact, there's even new methods and, and a kind of a resurgence and interest in, in, in the EEG techniques and analysis. But it, the, the, one of the challenges with the EEG is that it's, um, it's a summed response. I mean, there's so many millions of different batteries that they kind of have to sum to get something that's measurable, you know, through the scalp and the meninges and the, and the, and the blood and everything to out and through your hair, you know, out to where we can measure it. And so... So sometimes that doesn't give us great localization about where it came from. And, but we do get really precise information about the time course of how you process information. And, and individuals with pathological conditions, individuals psychopathy, individuals schizophrenia, individuals with depression, any type of illness, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that, that they can be sensitive to EEG differences. And um, because it's coming from the brain, right? Your illness is in your brain. And so you'll find... If you probe carefully, differences between these conditions, and then you might be able to develop ways of trying to augment them or treat them and then and then see that in EEG. And EEG was extremely popular. It's very mobile. Today, you can, it's only like $20,000 to have a really nice system with 64 different measures and portable so you can take it anywhere and it's it's great and they're there you can do you can do hundreds of people's for 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 just a couple hundred bucks it's not expensive right when i was about to graduate from uc davis so it was like 1992 um 93 there was the discovery and the proliferation of the measurement of what's called um blood oxygenation changes so hemoglobin um which we're all familiar with goes in the lungs gets oxygenated moves up to muscles in the brain, especially hemoglobin has different magnetic moments. And so blood with oxygen on it is, uh, uh, is, is red, right? So arterial blood is red. And then when the oxygen is taken from it, it turns to that blue color, honestly. And so it's as simple as that, is that we can actually tune an MRI scanner to be sensitive to that oxygen change. And where does that oxygen change typically occur? Well, it occurs where neurons are, are consuming or need oxygen. And so your brain is unbelievably vascularized. I mean, there is a blood supply within 100 microns of every neuron in the brain. So, so the blood supply gets so tiny and the arterioles, you know, are, are so fine that we're able to measure this change between, you know, having a lot of blood with oxygen on it and then it being consumed. And so that hemodynamic activity, the blood coming through and then being consumed, over time, you, you can see that what happens is it'll go from kind of a... a now, honestly, it's like a dark state. There's no blood there, no heat, no no oxygenated blood. And then when you when you do your fingers like this, for example, the motor system will start to see an increase in blood supply coming uh, and blood with oxygen on it, and you will see an increase in the MRI signal in that region. And then as you stop moving your fingers, it'll start to decrease again. And so we can model these hemodynamic changes in every region of the brain with an MRI scanner. And today we can do that, you know, when I started, it was like, you could collect a picture of the brain maybe every three seconds. And now we can do that every 300 milliseconds. So you can really precisely map out where areas of the brain are engaged. Of course, the person has to be in an MRI scanner that's equipped to do this stuff. And, and those are typically expensive. I mean, the, the cheapest ones are like 500,000. The most expensive ones are like 7 million. And you can 
but you can map out really precisely where neurons are using oxygen. And there's even people trying to do new techniques like measuring dopamine changes or measuring other metabolites that have different magnetic moments. And that's, that's the future. But this technique proliferated. Now, every single university has one of these MRI scanners, major university in, in the world. And, and so there are thousands and thousands of papers on the measurements, characterization analysis of kind of what happens when someone, you can, you can pretty much put people in the scanner and do just about anything in there. So you can present visual or auditory or, or somatosensory, or you can do and, and study all of these different effects. And of course, it turns out that these, me- these techniques are very sensitive to mental illness. They're, me- they're very sensitive to you know, psychopathic traits. They're very sensitive to all different types of, of, of activity. And so for a long time, EEG just went away almost because this was such a popular technique and it gave you precision about where, about where in the brain things were happening. We, for a long time, have always tried to combine the two to kind of do one and then the other and get to use the strengths of both. But honestly, at this point, because there's just so much interest in, in the brain imaging and, and the MRI scanner can collect many different types of brain imaging. So not just functional, but it can collect really nice pictures of brain structure, really nice pictures of the connectivity tissue, the white matter of the brain. Um, it collects very nice pictures of, of the vasculature. So the blood supply and, and there's many other things that it can measure iron con- there's, there's all sorts of things. And so, um, and each of those takes about five minutes. And so we really like the MRI scanner for, its ability. And plus both techniques, EEG and this fMRI are completely safe. They're as long as you don't have metal in your head or something that might move around, you know, the MRI is a completely safe, non-invasive environment. And so that allows us to do it with all of these different patients and other things. It is, it is obviously being stuck in a tube, you know, sometimes is a little unnerving, but it, for all intents and purposes, it's just been a wonderful tool for for researchers and every day we're using it to help us learn new things. It's, it's really amazing. That's fantastic. And of course, you've made breakthroughs with both of these techniques. So maybe if you could speak briefly about the EEG study, so things like the oddball test and P3, and then I think a more profound one was what you found with brain imaging later on. Sure. So as it relates to psychopathy, the a lot of the initial work that we did using EEG, we found a, a couple of kind of salient, you know, things. The first is that, you know, individuals with psychopathic traits have challenge, difficulty processing affective stimuli. So when we did these studies of emotional words versus neutral words, so things like both positive words like love, joy, warm versus negative words, hate, kill, maim. Most of those words will elicit a, a kind of an affect, implicit affective response. You'll, you'll basically, your brain says, even before you're aware of it, honestly, that that was an, that was a, an emotional word compared to neutral words, things like table, chair, arm, et cetera. And so individuals with psychopathic traits tend to not get, not benefit from that automatic process. So they really show no differences on the EEG traces early in processing for affective versus neutral stimuli. And this generalizes from, from words to pictures to, to vignettes to a variety of different types of stimuli. And the, the, the saying that comes from that is that they know the words, but not the music. That is individuals with these traits, their affective circuitries in their brain just do not automatically I mean, it's something that we all take for granted, to be honest, but they just don't process these things differently. Now, cognitively, they'll tell you, I know you want me to tell you that's a negative word. I don't feel that it's, it's, it's that negative, but I know you want me to say that. And so I can tell you cognitively, frontal lobe systems can tell you that that's, that's different. 
but these limbic, these, these older emotional uh, circuits that, that most of us just, it develops, you know, automatically for us, those do not tend to show a responsiveness to individual psychopathic traits. And so, and, and so that was, that was a lot of the early EEG research was trying to figure out, are these processes that psychopaths have that are abnormal occur early? Or do they occur late in processing, so to speak? And so, and then how do they, how do they, what types of strategies might they employ to, to, to perform and, and to, to act normal on some of these tasks? And so it was this kind of inability to appreciate the affective responsiveness that became a central, you know, kind of finding. And then there are other processes. So one of the, I did this, uh, what's known as a meta-analysis or a kind of a review paper that talked about if you look at all of the EEG responses from a wide variety of different tasks, we tended to see that there was this abnormal kind of waveform that would occur in, in individuals with psychopathic traits compared to other inmates that don't have the traits. And it was really shocking how consistent it was across various uh, studies. And it turns out that I was working with this great colleague, Bob Knight. Um, he's now a professor at Berkeley, but he was at Davis when I was there. And we were at a conference. I think we were, in, if I remember correctly, we were having beers in, in Hungary at this conference in Budapest. And I showed him these plots because I was trying to figure out. And he goes, you know, I've seen this before. I've seen those waveforms before, but I can't, you know, he's published hundreds of papers. I'm like, you know, he couldn't remember exactly where he'd seen it. And he goes, well, listen, here's a list of my papers. Why don't you look through them and see if you can help me find them? So I looked through all of his peer-reviewed papers and didn't find anything, hundreds of papers. And then I looked through all of his book chapters and they're buried in one of his book chapters. He had shown that in patients that had temporal lobe resection, so they'd taken part of this temporal lobe out um, for epilepsy treatment or for or maybe it happened in a stroke or whatever. He, he had this group of patients and they showed exactly the same waveform. And I was just like shocked. And I sent him the pictures and I, I superimposed them. I kind of graphically overlaid them with my data. And he goes, wow, this looks like your psychopaths have temporal lobe dysfunction. And he goes, I know that's not common. Everybody thinks it's this area right above the brain here, this orbital frontal cortex that's impaired. But he goes, you should really do studies of this temporal lobe and see what you find. And so I, I wrote that up and published that. And then, and then to test that hypothesis, that, that's when we moved into the, the MRI-based studies. And so the EEG really helped provide a great testable hypothesis for us about what might be wrong and where might things be wrong in the brain. And so we did MRI studies. And, and some of the first ones, you know, were again, these affective studies looking at processing of emotional words versus uh, other neutral words. And we found that in these temporal lobe structures and in these and some of the, the limbic circuitry, psychopaths just did not show the same engagement that we saw in other inmates, you know, and other uh, healthy indiv and non-affected individuals. And they just showed robust activity in those temporal lobe circuits for these affective words. And uh, we just didn't find that in psychopathy. It was like flat. It was pretty am amazing. And then we also found, and one of the most reliable effects that we see across adults, across juveniles with these traits, across teenage girls with these traits, women with these traits. Um, and in multiple studies, we have found that those medial, those temporal lobe structures are about five to 10% less, have five to 10% le essentially less muscle mass. And so you can think about your, you know, your, um, your brain like a muscle is that the, you know, the more you engage or the more you, you know, you, sometimes people have intrinsic muscle ability and sometimes people develop it. But for whatever reason, individuals with psychopathic traits really have a, a robust reduction in the, in the volume and strength of some of these temporal lobe, these limbic, these, what I refer to as these paralimbic circuits, these circuitry right adjacent to this limbic lobe. 
it's so fascinating, you know, when you have, I'm sorry, I'll tell you a story in a second, but um, that, that's been the most consistent finding is that it's these temporal lobe structures and to some extent, these orbital frontal right above the eye structures, that, again, part of this limbic circuitry that was identified in the 1900s, you know, as being this, this similar neuronal architecture, we're finding that be, that's what's... Uh, sorry, just to be clear again, I, I mean, I love the technical details, but so it's effectively impairment in the emotional circuits of the yes. brain, and then also that which regulates impulsivity and behavior, just to... That's correct, that's correct. That so these circuits are, okay. these circuits do a number of things, mm. and, and there's but lots of ways that we've come about understanding what these circuits do. You know, the, the entire circuitry is, is essentially... Um, you know, it starts right behind the or above the eyes here. It includes part of what we refer to as the cingulate gyrus. And then there's these temporal lobe uh, structures on both sides that kind of wrap around here, but in front of your ears, that 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 limbic circuitry has been shown in our group, dozen studies and in dozens of studies by other people who use the same, you know, techniques uh, to be impaired in individuals with clinical levels of psychopathic traits. And academically, we often might debate, oh, is it maybe one region is more important than the other? But from our perspective, we generally see that it's, it's all of the regions. It's this network of regions that is different. Um, and this is one of the only conditions that shows this network, this entire network being different. Certainly other conditions can have abnormalities in those regions, schizophrenia, you know, uh, but they're not in the same, they're not the same, they're different. And that's what the imaging data has allowed us to kind of uh, identify in, in, in thousands of papers people have published is what is the kind of specific and unique abnormalities in different conditions. And but th that is kind of the most consistent finding in our field is that those areas are, are functionally less responsive and uh, uh, structurally less I mean, you can describe it as having less muscle mass. And so they, it's not like they're missing. It's not like they're not there, but it's like that they're just basically atrophied or, or, or different or, or for whatever reason. And it's very diagnostic of the condition. That is, if we use these multivariate techniques or these latest machine learning techniques, we find that they can classify individuals, you know, over 85% accurate individuals. And that's impressive that your brain data is that good at classifying you. And we continue to be honestly surprised by how much information there is in the brain imaging data that allows us to to assign or, or, or to carefully say someone is in the high risk group or the or the low risk group. Um, and, but that's in a nutshell has been you know, the work. And, you know, there's there's just so many different links to other literatures. So there's this one of the things we've been finding a lot lately is there's this condition it's called the frontotemporal dementia. It's a, it's a terrible illness. It's a, it's a dementia that's not dissimilar from, from uh, Alzheimer's disease, but it's, it's onset is very early and rapid. And there's one variant that's called the behavioral variant, which is a degradation and a, and a degeneration of the anterior, this temporal lobe process and its relationship to the frontal lobe. And so patients just have some, there's some neurological condition that just degrades these things. And this behavioral variant is named as such because they develop a lot of psychopathic traits. They develop a poor insight. They get angry. They get irritable. They have no, they, they lose empathy. And the circuits that degrade there, we find are different in individuals with high levels of these traits, but don't have that illness. So it's one of the ways that you have converging lines of evidence. So if you have patients develop these things when they have neurological problems there, it turns out that we get these symptoms there in individuals who just have less strength of those the tissue there, but that they also have less fiber connections. So there's something called the uncinate fasciculus, which is a bridge that connects the temporal lobe to the frontal lobe. 
that is smaller in individuals with psychopathic traits. And there's been a couple of groups in addition to ourselves that have published that. Um, and so it's been a fairly replicable effect. And it's not, it's not like it's not there. It's just that for whatever reasons, you know, it's about 20% smaller in those studies. And that we think that might contribute to the failure of those two regions to be communicating well together. And so then that might help in the manifestation of these traits. But anyway, these are just some of the um, the findings that we have we found we've determined. And and at this point, you know, one of our biggest questions is just like the discovery and the measurement and the characterization of the psychopathy traits. Now we're saying, well, does this brain imaging data have predictive value like psychopathy has predictive value? That is, can I take all of the information that I've collected from the brain imaging data and throw it into an algorithm and say, does it predict reoffending like psychopathy does, like the traits do? Does it predict violent reoffending? And and we've published a series of papers on like brain differences between men who commit homicide versus men who who are in the prison for other crimes. Uh, uh, juveniles who commit homicide, what's different about their brains than juveniles that don't? Because homicide is obviously one of the scariest and costly and devastating you know for victims and their families and everybody crimes. And so if we can help to prevent the homicides. That would be a that just be a huge you know just a huge thing to be able to help provide treatment or thing anyway so and we've been finding that in in these offenders it is a lot of these anterior temporal lobes that is differentiating homicide offenders from non-homicide offenders so even on top of the measurement of psychopathic traits you know it's just it's sometimes just so amazing because i i have um you know i write a lot of grants and write a lot of papers but my students you know though i had a student who came in from new york she was in a kind of a disadvantaged background and she she we trained her for two years and um and she just did some amazing work and she led the paper on the on the homicide uh work in the adults and she you know she went through over 1500 files and then searched public records to try to identify and characterize exactly what happened in the crime so that we had a very good group of over 200 men who we know intended to go kill somebody or, or, and, and often, you know, so sometimes they, even if they missed, you know, we kept them in the, in the high risk group, but if they, you know, they, we, we took out people, for example, who were like, you know, drunk driving homicide or, you know, like what we call vehicular homicide here. So we took out people who were convicted of killing someone for, for reasons that were not like intentional, like an accidental thing or whatever. And so we had this pretty homogeneous group of men who, specifically had tried to take someone else's life. And and from a psychological perspective, of course, there's many reasons why someone might want to do that. But we were trying to say, is there anything kind of unique about this group? Um, and then we compared them to, you know, I think 700, 800 other men in the prison who have all the same background and history and neighborhoods, et cetera. And, and what were the differences? And we replicated all of the same regions that we found in children, youth, by 15-year-old kids who had done these same crimes versus their peers. That's, of course, very exciting science to be able to say that you had one group of subjects, you know, a study, one of your students wrote up this paper, and then you have a new student come in, and she's completely unrelated to those things. And she comes in and tests everything, does the best she can and replicates exactly what you found before. And that's, again, gets back to the scientific method is um, the testing and retesting the, the replication and extension in new samples, the all, all of those things I think are just essentially just important to to our to our work and and to all everyone's work in, in this and related fields. But it, I just um you know it, the same thing happened when you know you uh, this is another story, but um you know we write grants to to study you know go into the into the 
forensic facilities, the prisons, and study men with these traits. You know, you write the grant, you have hypotheses about the regions from the EEG data, you know, and you, um, so you develop it, you write a grant, you get the grant, which is always good news. And then you have a stu- students go in and they collect all of the data. Uh, you supervise all of the collection and then you hire someone new, a postdoc comes in and she takes that data and analyzes it and comes with a, you know, lab presentation and shows you that as you predicted, you know, you're fine. We're finding these exact regions are different. And you're just like, this is like so rewarding and fascinating that when these things pan out and then, then she takes another data set in, in youth and, and finds, you know, exactly the same, you know, effects in youth as you saw in adults as it relates to psychopathic traits. And then she goes and does it in the teenage girls. And you're just like, wow, you know, and, and often we'll have, we, we have so many people involved in the analysis. We're just so careful about making sure that, you know, everything is reliable and robust and, stochast- and non-stochastic, meaning that you'll always get the same answer if you analyze that data in, in our pipeline, you know? And I think that we, we do do some stochastic processes that what I mean by that, what stochastic means is that it could change over time. So if I, if I analyze it one way, like removing someone's, some noise from the data, sometimes the algorithm finds noise. And other times it finds something a little bit different. So the numbers can change a little bit, but, mm. but, but ensuring the reproducibility of some of these effects is, is I think what's been so rewarding in your career when you, mm. when you have a 10 year, at this point, I'm less surprised by the reliability of the, and the reproducibility of these results, but it's, it's often something that we really emphasize in our lectures and our judicial lectures. Mm. Um, and, and now we continue to try to replicate, you know, some of our, we're, we're looking at the second generation. So we have revised MRI scanners, they're collecting higher resolution data. So now we're trying to say, can we replicate what we saw, you know, 15 years ago in new data sets and new samples? And, and how reliable are those results, you know, even over time? So hmm. anyway, I mean, I just, yeah, sorry. No, oh, please, please. I'm just going to say, yeah, so uh, you've actually not quite defined it. You've explained it well, but it's uh, officially called, I believe, the Paralympic Dysfunction Model yes. of Psychopathy. So that's a tremendous breakthrough, and you explain it very well in the book. And, of course, to anyone who has any doubts, and you've just uh, done a wonderful job to also confirm and update even beyond the book, the fact that when we talk about a psychopath, they've been exhaustively studied now, and they do just have different brains. Uh, yes. Anyone who might yeah, and, wonder about that. Well, so it's kind of funny because, you know, one of the truisms in the measurement of psychopathological conditions, whether that's um, psychopathy or, or other mental illnesses, is that if you really carefully measure those conditions, of course, their brains should be different. And we, there's a lot of things we study and, and we're like, well, you know, we, if we're going to if we're going to predict things, we need to be able to show this like young versus old, like the brain is extremely sensitive to aging. So our measures have to be related to aging effects. You know, our, our measures have to be related to differences between men and women. Our, our regions have to be related to these other things. And, and anytime you find somebody that has such is so different and psychopaths are completely different than others, there's going to be brain differences. And it's just about carefully measuring, quantifying and showing how those things are different and how reliable. I mean, we don't find any single brain region as diagnostic of psychopathic traits, but these multivariate models, the combination of five or six different regions does tend to predict really accurately. And that's this multivariate framework that most scientists have moved to who do this type of classification work. That is, they're, so there's, there's some differences between the, the groups on, on amygdala. There's some differences on, on the anterior cingulate. There's some differences on on orbital frontal, but when it's you combine all of those differences together, you end up being able to say, "Wow, we, we're really we're really able to predict pretty accurately." Because again, there are there is just measurement overlap yes. between these groups, and so that's that's one of the strengths I think in the in the evolution of of statistical methods and predictive analytics, which you hear about all the time. You know, like 
how Walmart can predict what you're going to buy before you even get in the store, you know, and how Facebook figures out and targets your ads based on, you know, predictive analytics and, and, and saves anyway. And you, so you hopefully you only get ads that you want to see, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's there, this type of science has really evolved and, and has, has now generally being applied in a lot of different ways yeah. to these fields. And I, I find that great. You know, I don't develop new predictive analytics, but I know who to call who does, you know, I've got Josh Vogelstein at, at Johns Hopkins and I, we've had some grants together looking at how to develop, he, he develops the math and then we apply his math to our questions. And that works out really well hmm. because in a field like this, you know, you cannot become, you know, an expert in every single domain, but what you can do is learn how to acquire enough information to be a little dangerous, but also to be able to, 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 to learn how to use it and how to apply it to your work. And, and that's one of the fun things about being a scientist is just to continue learn, to continue my own learning, my own education, and then, you know, working with other people who want to do it. And that's something that we, we find like you might uh, in this podcast is that, you know, I, I have a lot of colleagues who are like, oh, it'd be so fun to apply my algorithm to your data set and we could write a paper on psychopathy together. And, and so we do that. And, and they, they um, you know, I find their algorithms exciting. They find our, you know, data and our techniques, you know, exciting. And then it just works out great to collaborate and write some papers together. And so that's been, you know, that's been a very common theme is, is to do that. And so it's a little bit been a bummer in COVID because you don't get to travel to these meetings and find of new things, not. you know, it's, yes. But um, it, it has uh, just been absolutely exciting career to, to be able to bring these types of things together and to answer more and more yes. sophisticated questions about how the psychopathic brain differs, if you will, mm -hmm. than, than others and how to understand it, how to treat it, how to manage it. It's, it's been really interesting. Well, The Psychopath Whisperer is a fantastic read on a number of levels, but in particular in actually showing readers images of psychopaths and explaining why they're different, delving into the science, but still I found it accessible. So for that, and as I said, many other reasons, definitely well worth a read. Now, oh, thank um, you. we've hinted at this a bit before actually in your last answer, but one of the more unnerving and troubling aspects of psychopathy is the fact that, and you delve into this in one of the chapters called bad beginnings how psychopathic behavior i know it's controversial to identify that in younger people but th mm -hmm. these individuals who are eventually clinically diagnosed display markedly different behavior from a young age even from birth so i'm somewhat hesitant to answer the, ask this question because i suppose it is quite complicated but are psychopaths born and not made so that's it's a not an uncommon question of course and it's one that is a challenge to answer i think though the best data we have, you know, we find that a 35-year-old individual with these traits has a very similar brain to a 15-year-old that has these traits. Does that extend down to, you know, a five-year-old that has these traits or a two-year-old? And um, we don't, we don't have the answer yet. It's extremely challenging to measure these traits, you know, in in children. I do find it fascinating to give lectures to like elementary school teachers because all of the teachers, and again, there's there's hindsight bias and other things, but all of the teachers will say, oh, it's easy to identify the kids that are on a very high risk trajectory. There might be a number of different things going on with them, but one could be these traits, you know, and, and, and the teachers tend to become very adept at identifying high risk kids from low risk kids. So have we done great MRI studies of these kids? No, there hasn't been a lot of evidence for that. My own, in, in, my own belief about this, just from you know, my own training and background and just the development is that 
there is a very strong, I would say, genetic component and or, or I don't even want to say genetic. I would want to say that there definitely is a very strong leaning when individuals develop these traits and you and you go back and you look at and they describe their own childhoods or other people have to, their parents have described their childhoods. They are very different from a very early age. Measuring and capturing that is a challenge, but that leads me to believe that that this is something that's present from a very, at least the basic architecture is present from a very early age. I, do, I don't think that means it's deterministic. I don't think that means that there's no way to change it. I, I have a lot of I have a lot of faith that certain forms of treatment, especially emphasizing things like positive reward versus punishment, is um, a way to help shape. It's a behaviorist approach, even, but it's a way to help shape individuals with the risk for these traits from developing them and for them becoming pathological, for them becoming so problematic that they lead to problems. I liken this in my book to, you know, I, I have a whole nother life where I do research with whales. And for a while, we were working with captive whales. And, you know, you would never, you never sit in front of a killer whale and spank it, you know, like, that's not, you're going to get eaten, you know, so you use positive reinforcement, you feed it fish when it, when, when it does something well, you feed it, you know, you give it other types of positive social interactions and other things, and eventually it helps shape their behavior. It's time consuming, it takes longer generally, but you, you realize that it's the only way that you could really work with in such an, uh, with such an animal in such an environment to help shape its behavior for, for, for your purposes, for example, or for, for the purposes that it's there. And the same thing is true of some people. Some people just do not learn from punishment the same way. And people with high levels of psychopathic traits do not learn from punishment. The rest of us just take it for granted, you know, and, hmm. and our system, our criminal justice system, all of our systems are often set up to punish you if you do something wrong. And if you're not going to learn from that, then there got, has to be another thing. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So there's this project that started in, in Hawaii, of all places, where they had a lot of problems with drugs coming in and, and Native Hawaiians were getting addicted to these drugs and getting more involved in drug problems and other things. And so they, what they ended up doing was they said, you know, it's far more cost effective for us to implement this positive reinforcement model. And we get fancy words for it, like something called contingency management in psychology. So we, what ends up happening is you say, listen, we're going to release you and you, you know, we know you work from let's say Monday to Friday. And so on Saturday mornings, you have to come in and, and provide a urine test to see if you've done any drugs. And if, if it's, um, if it's negative, you don't have a positive test, then we're going to give you $50. And the $50 you could, you know, is in gift certificates for the movies to take your family there or a, a gas card or, a, or a, a dinner at a nice thing. We want you to go out with your family and, and use it as a gift card. And then, and then next week, you know, you'll show up and give another clean test. You get $100. And this continues to show a graduation until the point where at three months where they haven't done drugs for three months, they might be getting $500 for coming in and testing. And they learn that positive things happen if they don't do these drugs, because a lot of the other problems that were occurring when they were doing drugs go away, but then they're also getting this reward and their families like it and they tend to engage and that's a good social uh, cohesion thing. And so, and then, but if they don't show up or if they do test positive, they lose their weekend. They, they don't go to prison for months. They go to prison for two nights and then they don't lose their job. They go back to work. And, and it, so it doesn't matter why, if they don't show what, why it's just that it's a small punishment. Two positive tests next two weekends. Yeah. You know, they allow small mistakes, but they are just universal, but small punishments. And and the person quickly learns that I can't get away with it. I can't fake the system. I know I'm going to get in trouble. I can't make up an excuse and not go show up for my test. I lose my weekend anyway. So the best thing for me to do is to not 
Yes. And this has now been generalized and replicated. And of course, individual psychopathy, they use a lot of drugs, but they can also not use drugs. And so you can help to use these types of scheduling, positive reinforcement versus negative to, to help shape behavior to be more socially constructive. Mm. And most people would generally agree not having people do drugs, especially hard drugs like this is, is beneficial to society yeah. and to them. And so these are the types of treatment programs that we find successful at moderating or reducing bad outcomes in individuals with these traits is that when they give people these rewards and they learn how to benefit from them, you eliminate what we call compression in psychology, which is in forensic psychology, where if they're good in most prisons, they don't get anything. You know, yes. If they're bad, they get solitary confinement or they get big sanctions and and the only thing they do in prison is punish because, you know, most people that run prisons learn from punishment and to appreciate that some people don't often takes a lot of convincing. Importance of positive but this type, reinforcement. Yeah. yeah, this positive reinforcement appears to help shape things. And then once they get into, they learn that it's not in my own best interest to do this. So I'm not going to do it because I don't want to go back to prison. That, that's been some of the most you know, interesting and unique and, 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 you know, really kind of colors my thinking is that this, this does appear to help reduce violent outcomes in individuals with these traits. We've, there's been a series of papers published by this group in Wisconsin that we work with, and, and they found that changing the way kids think, you know, changing them, getting them to learn about rewards, there's a lot of different parts to the treatment, but it, it really does help at, at one level, just reduce bad outcomes. It's not perfect, mm. but it's a step in the right direction. And so I'm a big advocate for programs like this. That's one of the things I do in my judicial lectures is emphasize that these are not immutable traits. They, they can have change, but it's likely to take as much time, as much time as it took to crystallize these traits is likely going to be the need to have the treatment. It's not like you can just magically change someone's, you know, 35 years of thinking this way. It's going to take a long time to change them back to thinking about something differently. And, and that's, you know, you, you need to spend time. I mean, in the, in the 15 year old kids, it takes a minimum of a year. If the kids don't do that kind of treatment, if they do the kind of treatment for six months, it doesn't have a measurable positive effect. It takes at least a year. If you're 25 years old, maybe it will take two years. Well, it, that's hard to do. It's hard to get people to sign on to treatments that cost a lot of money that take two years. Even if it might be cost effective in the long run, it's sometimes a systematic, a system-wide change has to occur for a correctional system to implement something like that and shift resources to treatment versus incapacitation. That's, that's often a struggle. You know, it really takes people who are thinking about it proactively and, 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 and it really takes in the United States, you know, since each state is managed differently by a governor, it really takes it, it needs to come from the highest level office. A governor needs to walk in and say, we're going to do this and you guys, because it's hierarchical, especially corrections, we're going to go ahead and implement this type of treatment program. And for my five-year or six-year term, whatever it is, we're going to we're going to see this through and see if it makes change. And we're going to invest in this or we're going to shift resources and we're going to do this. And I need buy-in from everybody. If you don't get buy-in from everybody, then you don't you don't stay here. You go, go get a different job. And I've seen that happen in a couple of places. You know, I've seen the policy implications and the changes that are necessary and the laws that have to be passed in order to do this. And and some states have done this um, and started to implement these programs. There, there's often a very strong, in the United States in particular, maybe around the world, but there's a very different feeling about working with children who might have these traits. I mean, the juvenile correctional system is set up differently than the adult correctional system. In the juvenile system, there's really more of an emphasis on treatment. So people are pretty receptive to trying to implement the best treatment. Whereas once they're 18 and they get arrested, it's kind of like those same people that were advocates for the juveniles are just not even interested in talking to them once they're an adult. I find that sad and, and disheartening at many levels, but I would love to work with the adult system because I do believe that there's opportunity for change, even in the adults that have high levels of these traits, especially young adults. 
but it's extreme. It's just a completely different system to try to get, you know, reoriented towards treatment and management and things. So yeah, at some point in my career, I'm, I, I think I would love to shift to to doing that. So maybe when I'm, you know, retiring from doing the research side, the, 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 the research that I'm currently doing, I would move more towards doing that. But but I've learned that, you know, the only way that these things really change is to have the attention of a governor, of the person that's in charge, yes. and that they could see measurable change during their time in office. And so that's, that's usually where it, it's, you have to start. And New Mexico is strange like that because, you know, I've met with all of our various governors over the, the 15 years that I've been here and, and they've all been very receptive to the research and very receptive to, to hearing about what, you know, thoughts and recommendations from people like me. And even though they came from different parties and different you know, backgrounds, it's been, uh, you know, it's been interesting to say the least. And whereas uh, like in California, you know, it, it, you might never get the attention of a governor. They're just so busy with so many other people. Whereas in New Mexico, small state, we only have, you know, two, two million people, you actually can get an audience with the highest levels of government. It's really a kind of a testament to small government and how you can, hmm. you might have a chance of having a, a different influence. But uh, anyway, it's it's just been, it's something that, you know, as you get to my point in my career, I mean, I, I just turned 51 and I'm interested in, you know, how to take the, translate the science that we've done into something that might have practical utility for the, the individuals that we've worked with in the past, but also for society to help, you know, make something better, how to take in and do something better. I mean, yeah, I could publish another hundred papers in my career, but you really want those papers to have some sort of clinical significance or benefits. And that's one of the other reasons why we've, we've, we've turned towards doing a lot of different treatment studies. And so taking and doing things like, you know, how does mindfulness meditation alter people's mm-hmm. substance use proclivities when they get released? How does cognitive behavioral therapies, you know, change people's, you know, decision-making when they get out. And I'd, I'd like to move towards more empathy development work, you know, training and, and recognition of those things. And does that have a measurable change in, in individuals that have high risk uh, for these, these events? Right. So actually, I was going to ask you about the treatment options. In fact, there was many questions I would still like to put to you. I was going to segue into free will, serial killers, popular culture representation thereof. And I even wanted to discuss Kevin Dutton's book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, where you represented. But unfortunately, I want to be mindful of your time. We only have a few minutes left here. But I was wondering, you've already been so immensely gracious with your time. Would you consider perhaps at your convenience, of course, recording maybe a part two where we can delve into some of these topics? I feel there's just... Uh, Sure. Absolutely. I think, I mean, part of, I mean, I enjoy trying to help provide this information to the public. And I think podcasts like yours are a great way to do that. And so I'd be happy to do a, a part two. I'm loath to ask so much, but there's so much I want to ask you. And you're a fount of knowledge. And I feel we could speak for double this length of time. Well, maybe just to end off then this part, Dr. Ken Keel, thank you so much for joining me. You're the consummate scientist. You're a fantastic, groundbreaking researcher, also an engaging, lucid author. So a man with many hats, and you've contributed greatly to the field of psychopathy and other areas of psychology. I'm sure you'll continue doing so. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've just provided so many great insights, so much information, I think, that everyone will love. And I already look forward to delving into these matters and others in part two. Well, I thank you very much for your invitation. And I, I have greatly enjoyed doing this. And it's very flattering to be complimented like that. So thank you again mm-hmm. for that. And, and I look forward to part two. So do I. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day and, and weekend. Thank until you. we speak again. Take care, Dr. Keel. Goodbye.